Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone, it's an ageing fearlessly day again. Thanks for tuning in. I am really privileged today to have with me Dr Ray Hodgson. Ray is a specialist obstetrician, gynaecologist and a gynaecological surgeon. He works in Port Macquarie, does some work down here in Sydney and he is very passionate about women's health And as you know, that aligns with uh, ageing fearlessly. And he does work not only in Australia, but also with developing countries in South Australia. Oh, sorry, Southeast Asia. Slipped there, didn't I, Ray? Especially Nepal. Welcome. Thank you very much, Karen. Very nice to be here. I am really chuffed to have you here today because I know the listeners, we're, we're often asking things about our health and I know being 61 myself I've gone through many many of the over 50s experiences such as menopause etc and I really thought you could shed some light on that for us today. I'd be very happy to shed some light on that for you. And I know you have a lot of light to shed. (laughs) Um, So Ray you do some work um, in Port Macquarie and Sydney and what what are some of the things that us over 50s women need to be mindful of and learn more about? Yeah, th- thank you, Karen. It's a, it's, a, it's a major phase in your life, isn't it? It's, it's, um, I was just thinking this morning, driving in, that um, the average age for women in Australia now is uh, uh, the average lifespan is, is 87. So you talk about being over 50, that's, 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 that's close to 40% of your life. And it's important to get that right. It's important to 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 live that that uh, major time in your life the the best and the healthiest way you can. And I look, I know from my experience, I think my fifties and beyond has been probably the best part of my life. However, there's many things that come with that, and new changes in my body, in particular, and all of us women are experiencing major changes, and some feel like they've been hit by a bus. It's it's different for all, so yeah, just shed some light there. Yeah, there's um, so there's physical changes and there's emotional changes, aren't there? And the the typical sort of postmenopausal physical changes that that uh, just about everybody is aware of are the the hot flushes and the night sweats and the insomnia and the crawling under the skin. There's the the physical appearance, the skin and the hair and the teeth. Uh, it all sounds very depressing when you start listing the, the different things that, that deteriorate, but they, they do. And, and then there are things on the inside as well. You're, the bones are much more likely to, to um, become osteoporotic and the blood vessels are much more likely to become diseased as well, if we're not careful. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's, uh, that's typically what happens uh, to most women. It sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound scary. And it doesn't have to be, as you're... 
as your um, as your that's the title of your 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 program and your book, uh, Aging Fearlessly, as your as that suggests, it doesn't have to be scary. Sometimes you think, I'm sure women think, gosh, it'd be great just to be a man right now. <laughs> yeah, I often sit there in my in my surgery and and uh, think how unfair it is that uh, that uh, the women. You women seem to seem to have a lot more that can go wrong in that phase of your life. Mind you, we, we have our problems too, of course, but, but uh, they're slightly different to yours. Well, I guess then you have to learn to, um, to cope with what the women are going through too and be supportive. So yeah, it's another right. phase. It's another phase. Learning for you as well. It is, and um, yeah, and we need to be mindful of that as, as doctors, as, as uh, clinicians, as, um, as medical workers of any sort. As we're going through that of, of of any gender, we need to be mindful that these are these are difficult times emotionally and physically. I wanted to say that just the other day I sneezed, mm. and I had to cross my legs because yeah. whoops, what's happening there, Ray? Yeah. So what you're probably describing is is an extremely common thing, once, especially once you reach your fifties as a female, and that's. And that's urinary stress incontinence. There's various forms of incontinence of urine and, and what you're probably describing is uh, what we call stress incontinence, the most common form of incontinence, which um, allows a small amount of urine to, to leak out, particularly when the bladder's full, and that happens with uh, laughing and coughing and sneezing to so many women. Yeah, it can be a little bit embarrassing if, yeah. you're, um, if you're not on top of it. <laughs> yeah. but, um, it doesn't have to be. And then in this day and age that... You don't have to put up with that sort of thing. And it's amazing the number of people who do, who, who won't report it to their friends or their doctors. When anonymous surveys are done, there's, it's extremely common how, how, um, how many women do suffer with that. You don't have to put up with that in this day and age. Well, when we come back, I want to talk about that a little bit more and what we can do if we are suffering from a little bit of incontinence or a lot of incontinence. The first song you chose today is Famous Blue Raincoat. Yes. Yes. Well, who wrote this song? The, the raincoat's got nothing to do with incontinence. I just think we should point that out. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I won't wear that raincoat. Okay. <laughs> uh, Leonard Cohen, one of my favourite artists. and Unfortunately, we recently lost Leonard Cohen. This is probably my favourite of his, of his songs. And uh, I, why do I like it? It's, um, this is a... This is a really sad song, I guess, of forgiveness. It's forgiveness of a person that is probably Leonard Cohen's brother, who's, who appears to have problems with um, other drugs or some psychiatric problem, tried to have an affair with Leonard Cohen's wife, and, uh, and um, Leonard's sitting in his apartment very late at night in New York, writing a song writing a, a letter, which becomes a song, to his brother, saying that he forgives him. Mm. Mm. Forgiveness, forgiveness is very important. Mm. I once saw Leonard Cohen in Sydney in a very small um, studio. I'm going to call it a studio near the Hoyts in George Street. And I'm going back to in my 20s. So it was a little while ago. <laughs> so let's listen to this song. Fine. You're listening to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. To find out more, go to the website rnb.org.au. 
I have with me today Dr Ray Hodgson, who's a obstetrician, gynaecologist and gynaecological surgeon. And we were talking about incontinence, Ray, and give us some tips on how we can overcome or, you know, perhaps um, treat incontinence. Yes, Karen, the, the, um, the, the overwhelming majority of women who suffer with stress incontinence, and we said that was losing urine when you laugh and, and <laughs> sneeze and cough or I'm run. I'm not going to laugh. Don't laugh, this is serious. <laughs> um, the, the, vast, the overwhelming numbers can be treated conservatively just with, with pelvic floor exercises. But, and that's, that's a, such a cliche thing to say, but I'd go one step further and, and, and having witnessed many women who think they're doing pelvic floor exercises properly and are not, what I would say is that see a specialist about pelvic floor, see a physiotherapist, and there are physiotherapists who do specialise in the pelvic mm-hmm. floor, and get spend half an hour or an hour with a physiotherapist just to make sure you're doing it properly. It, it varies, the, the actual type of pelvic floor exercises that are useful for a woman varies from one woman to another. Mm. So a, a well-trained, not any physiotherapist, but one who's who's got an interest or specialises in the pelvic floor, will show you the right way to do that so that you're not wasting your time. I'm sure a lot of people don't realise that there are specialists for pelvic floor, um, as in physios. There are. There are, and it's, it's quite easy to seek them out. And living in somewhere like Sydney, um, there are quite a number in this area, and, and uh, it's not hard to seek them out at all. And, not, and just not being scared to go and see someone, because this is an important, you know, important thing on your in your life to get under control it is and it's not something that goes away and then i must say um there are a proportion of women um in whom pelvic floor exercises no matter how well they're done just won't correct the problem that despite doing the pelvic floor exercises and despite doing the correct way the problem persists. They still lose urine when they cough and sneeze, and they, you lose your confidence. You, so you see someone walking down the street and they cough and they cross their they legs. Cross you know what's legs. going on. That's right. Or they wear dark, dark, dark pants and dark skirts for fear of for fear of um, the public being aware of the, the accident they've had. So, what do women, these particular women who um, the the pelvic floor exercises don't work for? What what can they mm. do? The, the, there's a number of surgical procedures that, that exist to treat those women and the gold standard now in the surgical treatment of stress incontinence is what we call the sling, the urethral sling. It's a day surgical procedure and the vast majority of people who require this. And um, it's minimally invasive, it's, um, it, uh, it means having a couple of weeks off work and, and, and getting back into your normal physical routine not long after that. That's the gold standard, the urethral sling procedure. Isn't that mesh? Mesh. It is mesh. And that's such a controversial topic at the moment, and I presume that's why you've asked that question, Karen. Mesh has um, a terrible connotation in the medical world at the moment because, um, as you're probably aware, there's a class action against the manufacturers of mesh. Um, A number of women, and we're still counting the number, um, have suffered horrendous problems because of the use of mesh. But... What's really important to point out here is mesh, women who suffered problems with mesh, and and we're talking about probably 8% of women who had mesh used, women who suffered problems with that 
the vast majority of those were not people having slings. They were people having much larger pieces of mesh for prolapse. It was a treatment of prolapse, not a treatment for incontinence. The mesh that we use for slings is a, a very narrow, short piece of mesh. And the number of women having problems with that is less than 1%. So, Ray, you mentioned prolapse. Yes. And that's another issue that women in the over 50s particularly, not always, but something else that can happen. Can you explain prolapse, please? Yeah. Prolapse... Prolapse is essentially a hernia. When we talk about prolapse of the, of the uh, vaginal tissues as opposed to prolapse of other parts of the body, we, we mean an organ is, is pushing down into the vagina um, from an area that it should be supported in the pelvis. And the, the organs that can push down and prolapse herniate into the vagina are the bladder or the bowel or the uterus, any of those three. If you've had a hysterectomy and there is no uterus, then the top of the vaginal, what we call the vaginal vault, can prolapse into the uterus. So it's, it's basically things falling down. It's like a hernia in your groin or a hernia in your, in your navel in the sense that an organ is protruding to an area it shouldn't be, but it's in the vagina as opposed to somewhere outside that you can see easily. Would women generally be aware that this is happening? I would say the majority of women with... Vaginal prolapse are not aware that it's happening because in the early stages it's usually something which doesn't cause any symptoms. It's only when it's progressed to um, a larger stage, when a larger part of the bowel or bladder or uterus has, has prolapsed, it's only then that most women would notice symptoms. What sort of symptoms would they notice? So with the bowel, the, the sort of symptoms they may notice are that when they open their bowels they, they feel like they haven't completely emptied them. They might notice a dragging sensation within the vagina or the low pelvis. With the bladder, they might notice not so much incontinence, but more hesitancy. They, they, they pass urine, but it comes away slowly, and, they, and then 10 minutes later, they need to pass urine again. They haven't been able to completely empty the bladder. Intercourse can be I was about to ask, how yeah. does you know, intimacy... Yeah, and, and, and the most common sort of complaint about intercourse, sexual intercourse, is that it's not that it's painful, but... It's just, just lack of sensation. It's basically it's floppy. It's it's been uh, it's been stretched. It's sort of ironic that you've got organs prolapsing down into the vagina, and and yet the sensation is less. It, it least, less. It feels it feels as if the vagina is too large. Mm. Just there was something else that just um, painful intercourse. <clears throat> mm. Women often experience that. In the, in the menopause phase, what's, hmm. what's happening there that causes this? Yeah, and, and in, the, in the later stages, more advanced stages of prolapse, the pain can certainly be a symptom. Painful intercourse can certainly be a symptom. There's other, there's, um, it just uh, in, in the absence of prolapse, um, the, the commonest form of, of uh, commonest cause of discomfort with intercourse is, is lack of secretions from the women. Um, and this, uh, the vaginal secretions, uh, tend to lessen once you've gone through the menopause. The normal glands that, that provide all that lubrication um, start uh, becoming less and less active and vaginal dryness is very common. And that's something that women don't have to put up with as well. There's lots of simple treatments for that. We're going to come back and talk more about um, vaginal dryness and what people can do. Um, empty. Empty, the song Empty? The song Empty. Ray La Montagna. This, uh, 
I love this song. This is um, this is this is a this is another this is a mournful song. The the the, the interplay between the cello, such a wonderful instrument for for getting across the message of, of mournfulness. The cello and the guitar. His 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 um his words. The, the imagery in this in this song is is um is wonderful. He. It's love that is not returned. It's lost love. It's his. It's his words, his song, his music, demonstrating his painful lost love. I loved watching your face when you were explaining that. Then it had so much um, expression. <laughs> That's scary. Let's listen to it. Welcome back. You're listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen on eighty-eight point seven and ninety point three, your community radio station. With me today is Dr. Ray Hodgson, gynaecologist, obstetrician, and we have just been talking about prolapse and incontinence. But earlier, Ray, we talked about, you know, medical problems for women over 50. What, um, what role does hormone replacement therapy have? Yeah, hormone replacement, that's, uh, that's another big controversial area, isn't it? We're actually calling it, um, we're now, in the medical field, we're now calling it menopause hormone replacement, MRT, for what that's worth, mm. um, MHT. But, but um, what role does it have? A massive role. Um, and I guess to, to, to give you one sentence that, that um, would, would, would summarise the whole thing about hormone replacement therapy, menopause replacement therapy, um, is that for the majority of women who suffer with moderate or severe menopausal symptoms, for the majority of women, the benefits of, of menopause hormone therapy outweigh the small risks. That's a, that's a take-home statement. The benefits of menopause replacement therapy, what we used to call hormone replacement therapy, the benefits outweigh the small risks for the large majority of women suffering with symptoms. Well, when you wake up in the middle of the night just wringing wet with sweat or you're in mm. a meeting and suddenly you've got rings under your sleeves because you've broken into some sort of hot sweat can be a little bit embarrassing if other people see it or for your partner if you're sleeping next to them. You've just suddenly turned into a sauna. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing you don't have to put up with. It's, and the most effective management of that is oestrogen, oestrogen replacement. And that um, that may also require a second hormone, progesterone, or it may not. And I guess if we're going to go down that track, the the, the very basic first question is if, if someone's contemplating receiving hormones for the prevention of these menopausal symptoms, it it varies enormously whether or not the woman has a uterus. If she has no uterus, if she's had a hysterectomy, it's really simple. Oestrogen replacement can be given, and that will, in the vast majority of women, stop those night sweats, those hot flushes, those crawling under the skin. It'll protect them from... It'll help them sleep. It'll, stop, it'll make, a much, make it much less likely that they have insomnia. It'll protect their bones. It'll protect their blood vessels. Oestrogen alone, in the absence of a uterus, is really, really useful therapy, and I, I think it's a no-brainer. It's, it's a really simple one. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there are risks... And people will say, what about the risks of breast cancer? What about the risks of 
of um, stroke, of cardiovascular disease, of, of blood clots in the legs. Under the age of 60, those risks are no greater than a woman who does not receive oestrogen. There is no extra risk of blood clots, of breast cancer, of stroke, of cardiovascular disease in women receiving oestrogen alone. That's simple. And I think, Ray, one of the things is you go to your doctor and you, you know, maybe are prescribed these things, but you also have to be monitoring if there's any change in your own body so that if, you, if, you, if you're finding symptoms that are really unusual, then you go back and ask your doctor what's happening. That's right. And, and if, you're, if, you're, if you've chosen to go down the hormone replacement, the menopause hormone therapy pass, pathway, if you've chosen to go down that pathway, um, you, the, the script that you will receive from your doctor will only last for a maximum of 12 months in any case. So you're obliged to go back to your doctor to ask him or her um, whether it's appropriate to continue or not. But I've talked about, so far, just women without a uterus, estrogen mm-hmm. alone. If they do have a uterus, which is the majority of women, then if they're choosing to receive hormone therapy, menopause hormone therapy, to, to treat this, these um, symptoms, which can be horrible, as you've suggested, it's, it's, it gets slightly more complicated. With a uterus, the woman cannot just take estrogen alone. She must also take progesterone or mm-hmm. progesterone. And that's when it gets a little harder because combined hormone replacement, combined menopause replacement therapy, that's what we're talking about, combined estrogen and progesterone, that's when the issues of breast cancer start to, start to play a role. Ah. And it does, the big question, the big, the big, the emotive aspect of this whole thing about hormone replacement, menopause, hormone therapy, this, the most emotive area there is breast cancer. And so many women will either choose not to have hormone replacement, menopause hormone therapy, or they'll choose to stop it because of that fear which our media manages to, to um, create for, for so many women and men mm. whose women are receiving this, whose, whose wives and partners are receiving this therapy. What can we say? What can we say about breast cancer and combined hormone replacement, combined menopausal therapy? What can we say? We can say that for the first five years of receiving menopause replacement, this hormone therapy, for the first five years, the woman will not increase her chances of developing breast cancer. After five years? After five years, if she continues, and we're talking about quite a small proportion of women who choose to continue combined hormone therapy after five years, then the risks above and beyond the, 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 the background risk do start climbing, do start going up. A small amount, and we're talking about something like per 10,000 women receiving combined hormone therapy for more than five years, per 10,000, we're talking about an eight, extra eight cases. And I guess if you're doing this with your doctor, yes, then you're both monitoring the situation the whole way through. You are, and, and, and really, realistically, not many women choose to receive hormone therapy for more than a few years, let alone five years. When we get to that five-year period and we sit down and we say, no, you've been receiving combined hormone therapy for, for five years now, do you wish to continue? That's when these benefits and risks of cancers come in. Because while you've got an... In- should you choose to continue combined hormone therapy after five years? Yes, 
you're taking a small risk of an extra chance of breast cancer, but your chances of bowel cancer actually go down and your chances of uterine cancer go down. Your lifespan increases. Every study looking at, simply looking at how long you're likely to live with combined hormone therapy, um, women who receive combined hormone therapy live longer than those who don't. Well, that's an interesting statistic. Mm. Mm. Ray, when we come back, I want to talk about, um, you know, you're an expert in women's health and why don't some people trust experts anymore? It's a really good question, Karen. Before we come to that, though, you've chosen another song, The Long Road. Hang on, my my vision, The Long Road. The Long Road, yes. Who who, who sang this song? Oh, um, I can't remember his name even. I watched this movie... Um, Dead Man Walking many oh, years ago. I know ago. the movie. And as the as the um, Dead Man Walking, as the as the uh, as the actor in this movie was walking towards the electric chair, this song was playing. It's a haunting song. It's uh, it's um, it has a lot of Asian Indian influence, which which reminds me a lot of Nepal when I hear this. And the fact that it's it's being played as a man's walking to the to his death uh, is painfully poignant okay great here we go welcome back to 88.7 and 90.3 your community radio station you are listening to aging fearlessly with karen please go to facebook and like the page aging fearlessly Ray, just before we listened to that fantastic song, we were talking about people not trusting the experts anymore. Yeah, it's a phase we're going through, isn't it? Don't don't trust the experts. Trust the person you're sitting next to on the bus rather than the, 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 the person who has all the experience and the expertise. It's an interesting phase, isn't it? We're in a phase where you're more likely to vote, or many people are more likely to vote for the non-politician. Many people are more likely to, to trust the um, the climate the climate sceptics rather than the the scientists, and and to some extent that um, that lack of trust of experts flows over to medical specialists, medical experts too. Can I just say I was in a pharmacy the other day because, as you know, I I work in that industry, and one of my pharmacists said, "Do you know, Karen? I think I'll come. I'll um." one day sell my pharmacy and open a health food shop with vitamins, etc., because everyone seems to be going there now. Yeah, and you've got to ask why this is so. Why are people less trusting of experts than in years gone by? And I, to be fair, we, I suppose I would be considered an expert in women's health. We experts need to, we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing wrong that's, um, that's leading to this lack of trust? And there's an interesting study, Karen, um, from a couple of years ago, looking at who people trust in society. And, and um, what I found, there were three things that lead to the prerequisites before people will trust somebody. They, the, those three things are that the person who wants to be trusted needs to know his, his stuff or her stuff. They need to know that. They need to be honest, but they also need to have a, a warm heart, a kind heart. If you, don't have, if you don't have all three of those, it's much less likely that... Somebody's going to trust you if, whether, whether or not you're an expert. Yeah, and I know bedside manner um, has been addressed in, for medical students going through now and, and mm. so that they do have that ability to communicate with 
patience. That's really important. But but for somebody like me right now, I'm, I'm, you know, how can I? It's impossible for me to to, to generate in the space of an hour uh, the idea that I'm trustworthy, that I'm that I'm um, that I'm honest, that I'm that I'm kind-hearted. It's impossible to do that. You've got a much better chance with your own doctor. And if you're talking about something like um, hormone replacement, menopause, um, hormone therapy, then it's not just listening to an expert like this now, but it's 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 listening to your doctor. And if if your doctor doesn't tick those boxes, if he or she doesn't, if you don't perceive that honesty, that kind heart, and that knowledge, then move on, find another doctor. It's so important for lots of issues, hormone replacement, menopause therapy included. I wrote in my book um, about my doctor, and I just call her Dr Kerry. She knows I wrote in my book about her and we just agreed I'd call her Dr Kerry. But I have been seeing Kerry for 15 years now or more and, my God, I probably would not be where I am today without her. And she knows when I walk in there what she needs to do for me. And she, you know, because I don't know if you're aware, but I suffered really badly from anxiety and uh, Kerry would know and she'd be onto it straight away and she'd know where to point me, etc. Um, and the trust that we have, her and me, and to look after myself and me and her to be my guide and my doctor is so important in my life. Yeah, I would think that's essential and I think you're very fortunate to, to have found that and I would have suggested to you that if you hadn't found that to keep looking until you did. Yep talk about preventing um, stroke? Yeah. Um, well, I might give you an example. I, I, I yeah, so, want to continue this. Yeah, I do. I want to continue. Um, so can you give an example, for instance, um, if I asked you, does hormone replacement cause stroke? Or Yeah. Yeah, does, or, yeah, does hormone replacement cause stroke? Let me, let me use this as a as a lead into why people don't trust experts. You ask me, does hormone replacement therapy cause stroke? If I was a, an expert who was using jargon and, and uh, um, saying things that might be totally accurate, I could turn you off by saying something like, when you say, does, does hormone replacement, does hormone therapy cause stroke? Well, in, um, with level one evidence, looking at uh, well-constructed, randomised, controlled trials. In women less than the age of 60, the relative risk is 1.1, which is well less than than, in, than any standard deviation should expect. So, yeah, that's fine. You're turned off straight away. Mm. If you're sitting next to somebody on the bus and you say, what do you reckon about hormone replacement, estrogen replacement? Does it cause strokes? And the woman... Or the person on the bus said, well, me and my friends, we've, we've been on it for, for years. None of us have got strokes. So it's yeah. got to be so. So, you know, you, it's natural for most people to, to take the, sim, the simple form of, of explanation. The yeah. better way for a doctor or an expert to have said that would be, does, does estrogen hormone replacement, uh, does this lead to stroke? If you're under 60 and you're otherwise healthy, no. There is no extra risk of stroke. It's as simple as that. We can't stand up in our conferences among our medical colleagues and say that. We have to use our medical speak, our jargon. Mm. We have to, otherwise we're laughed out of the conference. But, but to talk to a patient, to talk to a lay person, it's a different form of language. The message needs to get, be got across and it needs yeah. to be accurate. But we, we experts need to be more simplistic in, our, in, in relating the inf- information. Yeah, and look, what you're saying is so important and really to trust the experts in, because they didn't study for all those years. 
Yeah, but we have to, we have to take some ownership of that lack of trust as well. Yeah, Ray, we have something very important to talk about, and that's your projects in Southeast Asia, especially Nepal, and relating to all these health issues that we're talking about. We have one. Actually, you know what? I'm going to skip this song because Nepal is very important, and what you're doing in Nepal. Um, and we can have a song again later. So do you mind if we just carry on? No, let's talk, Karen. <clears throat> so recently um, we had a trivia night to raise money for your projects in Nepal. But tell us what's happening in Nepal for these women that are suffering from prolapse. Um, you've talked so much about it to me and I've read lots of things online about what you're doing and... Can you explain the issues, please? Yeah. In a nutshell, women's health in Nepal is atrocious. We've been discussing our health issues, women's health issues in Australia and the Western world, and, and they certainly need addressing, but, but they, they pale into insignificance almost when you, when you look at the suffering that goes on in Nepal. And in particular, we're talking about this thing called prolapse and incontinence. Yeah, we see it in, here in Australia, and it, you have prolapse, you have incontinence. It, it will usually get fixed. It's, it's not something you don't really think twice about. We have your physiotherapy, or you have your surgery, and uh, you move on. But if you happen to be a woman living in particularly rural Nepal, your chances of having your prolapse, your incontinence, fixed are really, really small. The, the prevalence of prolapse, the, the number of women who suffer with prolapse is massive over there. For, for one, whatever reason, we, we don't understand that reason. Prolapse in Nepal is more common than in any other country. But it's not just that, Karen, it's that the ages of women who suffer with prolapse. Here, as we said, it's mostly in women over the age of 50. It does happen in women under the age of 50, but much more commonly over 50. In Nepal... Many, many women have this terrible problem of prolapse and often incontinence when they're in their 20s and 30s, sometimes in their teens. I have seen one of your presentations of some young women with prolapse, <coughs> excuse me, in Nepal, and it's horrific. It is, and it's disfiguring. We're not talking about a slight bulge into the vagina and a bit of discomfort and with intercourse and, a, and some troubles opening your bowels and passing urine. What we're talking about is a massive lump between the thighs, something which stops them working. These, these women we're talking about are mostly subsistence farmers. They live from, from, from hand to mouth. They, they can't work anymore. They can't, they can't have intercourse anymore. And Nepal, as beautiful a country as it is, it's... It's terribly patriarchal. So, so many husbands have a wife who can't work anymore on the farm and she can't satisfy him in the, the, the bed anymore. So he'll push her out of the home and take on another wife. I, you know, at the presentation I saw you give, I, I was like quite mortified as most or every one of us were there. And you also talk about... Um, the mortality rate. Yeah, the, the issue of prolapse and incontinence is one area. The other area that we're involved in a big way is maternal health and, and uh, the number of women dying in, in childbirth or, or during pregnancy 
uh, is is horrific. The number of babies dying is horrific. If I can give you two figures, mm-hmm. every hour a woman dies as a result of pregnancy in Nepal. Wow. Every, That's... every hour. So <laughs> this this um, this interview we're having now, there will be another death in Nepal from from what's usually a very preventable disease. Every every hour a woman dies as a result of her pregnancy. The other statistic is that every 15 minutes a baby dies. And that, that, that's, it's hard to get your head around those numbers. We, we, in it, we take those things for granted, like we take so much for granted in our country, that when a woman's pregnant, pregnant she'll, she'll more than likely get through that pregnancy unscathed and she'll more, likely, more than likely take home a healthy baby from the hospital. Yes, there are times that doesn't happen, but, but there are many, many times that that uh, doesn't happen in Nepal. You go up to Nepal often and you work there three or four times a year. Yes. Tell us about what you're doing when you're there. So sometimes we take teams and we do and we, we, we run camps in remote Nepal where we where we teach doctors and nurses um, uh, how to manage prolapse and how to treat how to perform the surgery and look after them postoperatively. Sometimes we take teams and we teach the local midwives ultrasound, antenatal ultrasound. And uh, other times we just teach midwives in other um, standard midwifery things. One of the problems with Nepal is that um, you can you can have a build a lovely hospital and you can staff it with well trained local staff, but women just won't come. Two thirds of the population just will not come for antenatal visits or or come to the hospital to have their babies. They'll choose to deliver at home or be forced to deliver their babies at home. And why is that? It's it's largely the husbands who won't want their women to, you know, their wives to, to leave the home, and especially if they've got other children or they've got farm farming duties to, to take care of. Sometimes it's a mother-in-law who who will not allow the, the her, her daughter-in-law to to leave the, the home and and, uh, and and be subject to Western medicine. This is a this is a big the cultural problem is probably the biggest challenge we have. But can I tell you something that that um, that happened that by by accident? And this was. You know, you have these you have these hurdles, you have these challenges um, when you're mm-hmm. over there, and it, it drives you crazy. But when you find a way through that, it's it's just it, it's amazingly fulfilling. We I talked about training midwives, local midwives, on how to perform ultrasound in pregnancy. Yeah. So we we have these camps where we train the midwives, and and we uh, we perform, we teach them how to perform ultrasound on these pregnant women. Mm-hmm. All these women who previously would not turn up to the hospital, suddenly start coming and, and visiting the hospital to have an ultrasound of their baby. Mm. Come, they come over the mountains and across the lakes and they walk for sometimes a couple of days. Really? A couple of days and, just to have an ultrasound? Yeah, and it's not because they care about fetal welfare. They don't, it's not really they're concerned about the welfare of the baby. They'll come with their husbands often because they want to see a picture of their baby. Really? And they'll, and they'll sit in, the, in a, a room, not much bigger than this studio here, they'll sit in a, a room, they'll wait for a couple of hours to have their ultrasound and, and quite happily wait that time. And during that time we'll show videos of breastfeeding and hygiene and then we'll show them the, 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 the labour ward and show them how friendly the So you've really is. got a bit of a captive audience. We've got a captive can... audience, yeah. The midwives will take their blood pressure, they'll, they'll give them the vaccinations, they'll make sure that they've got enough iron on board. We're still collecting statistics, but but I'm really I'm certain that there are more lives that are saved by doing the ultrasound, not so much from finding um, diseases, disorders which can be can be cured. There are more lives saved from these women coming along, being the captive audience as you call them, and checking and finding other conditions. 
Ray, we haven't got long now um, that we have to talk. We have to round up soon. But I, I wanted to ask you if people want to donate to your charity because ultimately you're trying to build a hospital there. We are. We're trying to. We're in the process of building this now, and the foundations have started. This is a this is an area east of Kathmandu. It's about five hours drive from Kathmandu along very winding. I'm coming along with you one day. By the way, you'd be very welcome, Karen. We're building a hospital, and and we we need five hundred thousand dollars. We've been we've been we've been um, trying to raise funds now for about eighteen months, and we're up to I think one hundred and thirty thousand last count. We've still got a long way to go. And we want to build this hospital. We, we've got the doctors, the local doctors, we've got the midwives, we've got the nurses, we've got the administrative staff. So you're only a fifth of the way there. Uh, a quarter, I guess. A quarter yeah, of the way yeah. there. We've got the whole site, we've got the cleaners, we've got the technicians from the pathology. We've got everything except we haven't got a building to put them in and that's what, that's what we're wanting to do. Well, how do people donate to your charity, which is called? Australians for Women's Health. And the easiest way is to go online, and the, uh, the the website address is a4wh, and that four is a digit four a digit four wh dot org org. And on that, on and please visit the website, and and, and um, if this appeals to you, then please donate. There's there's uh, links on 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 that website where you can quite easily do that. I will also put these up on Facebook when. Mm. Um, when uh, we've finished this interview mm. and uh, all the links. And if you don't mind, I might put a copy up of your brochure, Restoring Dignity and Hope to the Women of Nepal. I'd be very happy for you to um, do that, Karen. Because I do think it's a wonderful charity. And having seen, Ray, some of the the um, video that you did in cleaning that remote little building that you call a hospital hmm. when you go up there to operate and cleaning the mould and the dirt off the wall just so you can do a couple of weeks' work. Um, I take my hat off to you <laughs> and the team that go because you all are volunteers. We are. The conditions are harsh. But I, and it's cold and we're usually on the side of some Himalayan mountain. Beautiful scenery, I've got to say, but it's the conditions are really harsh. I, that seems to... That seems to promote the camaraderie. It's it's um, the when we sit down with the volunteers of a night and have a meal. It's uh, it's and and you've you've managed to help a number of women during the day and teach the local doctors and nurses and midwives. It, it's it's a feeling which is um, honestly I enjoy my work here as a doctor in Australia. But but this this um, this puts that in a shadow. The satisfaction you get from doing that over in Nepal puts the satisfaction here in in, in a shadow. Well, well. Ray, I'm going to wind up because I think we've just really covered so many things today and I want to make sure that the people of the Northern Beaches know exactly what you're doing and I hope the women that have been listening today have more of an idea into the things that are happening to them and what they should do if these things are happening Um, and Come and talk to us again. Maybe I can get you on the phone one day and we can talk more about the project as Nepal goes along. Mm, I'm more than happy to, Karen. This has been a delight. And maybe you can send me some photos to put on Facebook. It would be fantastic to see some photos of maybe the foundations of the hospital and the things that are happening over there, some of the ultrasounds, etc. That would be so awesome to have on Facebook. You'd be most welcome to have the photos as well. Well, cheerio, everyone. Um, Thanks to Dr. Ray Hodgson. And 
I'm, uh, I love today's interview as I love all my guests. They just bring so much knowledge and passion uh, to the Aging Fearlessly program and uh, catch up with you next time. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all nine to five. It's a wonderful life Let's go and climb mountains high Swim across oceans wide Live out our dreams Just you and me Let your heart be alive There's no time to waste Gotta go get the most This treasure that you've got to find, baby, don't be shy. Let's go and take that ride. Taste the sweet and the spice, everything else. Let your heart be alive, baby, just let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive.